people naturally celebrate mountaintops, even if they've never been to one, and most people haven't. But still, the view, the sense of accomplishment, the peace, the sun, the clean air, the refreshing breeze, what's not to love on a mountaintop? But have you noticed that very little grows on a mountaintop? Wind-blown rock provides neither anchor nor nourishment for plant life. Valleys. Valleys are where water flows. Valleys are where the flowers bloom and the bees buzz and the butterflies dance. A broad valley can make for great farming land, can make a wonderful place to build a town. Narrow valleys, however, can be a bit less inviting. Steep sides, thin paths, dense foliage, foliage, limited sunlight all make for slow travel through a narrow valley. There are also great places for predators to ambush the unwary. When the sun sets and the gloom gathers, if the valley's steep enough, you get a new moon or a cloudy night, and that valley can go completely black. Everybody's life includes some dark valleys, some narrow valleys. And so David says to us in verse 4, even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Our journey through life will include some dark valleys. The two contrasting experiences that we can have in those valleys. The first is, as David says, fear in the dark. Now, No responsible shepherd would lead his flock through a narrow, dark valley at night. Sheep are skittish. They're defenseless, easy prey. So the shepherd wouldn't put them at that kind of a risk. But if, when the shepherd has the sheep pass under his rod as they go into the pen that night, and he takes the count and he finds that one is missing, he will leave the flock with his helpers and he will go after the one that's lost and that one may be lost in a deep, dark valley. Sheep wander. They go their own way, as Isaiah tells us. And the Lord restores, as we saw last week. But sheep also run into unintentional mishaps. They're following the grass head down. They can venture out of sight of the shepherd. They can follow the grass down an incline, and they just don't hear when the shepherd calls for them all to follow him home. And so separated from the shepherd, they might find themselves in a valley as the sun goes down. Now, David's first line of verse 4 is, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That doesn't convey 
any rebellious or sinful intent on his part. He simply finds himself in the valley as the light fails. And the darkness that overtakes him, he says, is profound. It's, it's the darkest dark imaginable, as dark as death. But David's word choice here, in his language, this is not the word that you would use to speak of the end of physical life. But it does describe an ominous situation, one that would provoke despair. Some creatures are nocturnal by design. Their sight, their hearing, their instinct, all tuned to the darkness. But, but we are not naturally wired that way. Our weariness goes up as the light goes down. David's scenario, in a valley, in deepest darkness, that has intense anxiety written all over it. We cannot see and we cannot run. Is that a valley you know? Some say no. Some are going, oh, yeah. <laughs> a situation so grim that it strangles hope and suffocates faith. Have you noticed that trouble is a pack animal? It doesn't tend to run alone. When one problem comes, it seems like others just pile on top of it. One of our elders, Tony Derns, had been having some discomfort in his back. But that had been overshadowed by the fact that he learned that his wife, Sunil, was pregnant with their first little girl, and they had three boys at home. But then his back continued to get worse. They did some tests. The doctors were baffled. They did an MRI of his lower back saw nothing but the pain got so great that Tony really couldn't function eventually they did a second MRI covering more of his back that time they found it it was a tumor that had grown so large and enveloped his vertebrae in such a way that it had actually fractured some of his vertebrae They did biopsies on the mass and found out it was fourth stage leukemia. His treatment required chemotherapy so toxic that he had to take extra care, special procedures to make sure that his wife and children were not exposed to it. And even with all that, the outcomes were uncertain at best. Tony found himself weak, in pain, and at times he's hospitalized while his now very pregnant wife was tending to him in the hospital and trying to care for their three sons at home while she's trying to manage her pregnancy. Even though I walked through the valley in the shadow of death. Narrow valleys are difficult to navigate in deep darkness. Footing is treacherous even in the daylight. At night, walking is about all you can manage. But this is a valley, not a jungle. Valleys have a direction to them. 
And so you keep moving. But even as you keep moving, it's dark. You have to go slowly. And there's a foreboding that accompanies every step because you don't know what may be around the next bend. Tony's family was depending on him. He had responsibilities to take care of. He had people that he loved dearly that he wanted to be with. But even so, it hit a point when Tony was so depleted by the pain and the chemotherapy and everything that went with it that he said he told the Lord he was ready to go. The valley had reached its darkest. Still, Tony refused to get passive and give up. Continue the treatment, continue to choose to hope. The second part of the verse says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, you're in the valley. It's dark. You can't see where you're going. You have no idea what the next step holds. I will fear no evil. Most of us would just go, huh, yeah, right. Understandably, we cannot just take control of our emotions and make them dance the way we would like them to. Our experience tells us otherwise. But when the scriptures command us not to fear, they refer not to the emotion but to our actions. Will I allow my fear to dictate my choices or do I choose by some other higher authority? Viktor Frankl was a neurologist and a psychiatrist. He was Austrian. He's of Jewish heritage. And he lived during Hitler's reign. He and his family were imprisoned in the concentration camps. He was at Auschwitz. And like the rest of his family and all the other prisoners, he was tortured, he was humiliated, he's dehumanized in every conceivable way. Except for his sister, all of his family, wife, parents, other relatives, died at the hands of the Nazis. He reflected later that every part of his life was determined by the guards. Sleeping, eating, toileting, torture, abuse, life, death, all except one. Frankel came to understand that he had command over his attitude toward the guards regardless of how they treated him. So in later years, he crafted his thoughts into this statement. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Now let me illustrate what he's saying. In his situation, the guards would be abusive to him. So that would be the stimulus. The natural automatic response in that situation would be fear and anger. 
But Dr. Frankel is saying that one of the uniquenesses of being human is that there is a space between stimulus and response that the animal kingdom doesn't have. They operate on instinct in those situations. But we have this space that's called choice. Viktor Frankl would choose to speak to the guards in kindness despite their treatment of him. When he began working on this, he could only manage the smallest expression of kindness, but he continued to work at it. And as he did so, it expanded his ability to choose his attitude regardless of how they treated him. He not his captors, would determine his mindset. Now, please hear me. It's no failure on our part to feel fear when our circumstances are dire. Yes, there is fear in the dark. That's the stimulus. But we have another option. As David tells us that there is also comfort in his presence. Now, Viktor Frankl was Jewish by ethnicity, but secular in his thinking. As far as we know, he was not a follower of the Jewish faith. Tony Derns is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And all through his ordeal, Tony looked to the Lord Jesus. He could walk through the valley without surrendering to the fear because he knew what David knew. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, please don't miss the change that happens in this verse. From the beginning of the psalm until now, David has referred to the Lord as he and his. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. But in the valley... In the darkness like death, the shepherd is no longer out in front leading me. He is now at my side to comfort me, to guide me. David says not he is with me, but you are with me. It becomes personal. This is a promise that God made to his people, his sheep, under the old covenant and uh, under the new covenant with the church. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When Israel was drifting from the Lord, severe trials lay ahead of them. And the Lord sent a specific message through Isaiah about the trials ahead. In 43 verses 1 to 3, he says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
Notice the word through. <laughs> We're a fallen people in a fallen world. Sometimes we go wrong. Sometimes life just goes wrong. But difficult times come across our paths. Here's the thing. We don't face them alone. Through the waters, through the rivers, through the fire, our shepherd is with us. Our Savior sees us through it. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine stopped at the house. Now, he had, he had lived a rough life. God had saved him, and now God was using him as, as chaplain in various places and, and just to preach every now and then. And <clears throat> excuse me. Before he left, he told us about a devotional he had recently given about the second time Peter walked on water. Hmm? The first time is fairly well known. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus placed his disciples in a boat, told them to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he dismissed the crowds. As they were rowing, the wind rose up against them. Evening found them far from land and struggling. So Jesus went to them walking on the water in the darkness. They saw him. Of course, they freaked out, convinced it was a ghost. Matthew 14, 27 says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't wade through the water. He walks on it at the bidding of Jesus. He's focused on the Lord, and he literally steps out in faith and does what is physically impossible for him to do. He walked on the waves for a few steps. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. When they got into the boat, how did they get there? Peter had walked out to Jesus on the water. The wind had whipped some spray from a wave top into his face, and Peter blinked. Realized he was doing what he couldn't do, and down he went. But Jesus didn't berate him. He caught him. He chided him good-naturedly. Good Peter, you had it. You were walking on the water. Why did you get distracted? And then Peter... And Jesus walked on water back to the boat, Jesus holding Peter's hand. Peter walked on water a second time. What a clear 
picture of God's heart toward us. He's not watching us, waiting for us to make a mistake so he can berate us and reject us. That's not our God. He applauds our efforts to step out in faith and move toward him, even while we feel fear ravaging our hearts. He's ready to catch us and put us back on our feet so that we can resume our faith walk with our hand in his. Tony and Sunia said that repeatedly, in their deepest dark, the Lord was with them. So much so that, that Tony said those who were caring for him would, would stop and say, how can you have this much peace with fourth stage leukemia, with a baby on the way, with three sons? And all, how can you have this kind of peace? He would just tell them about the faithfulness of the Lord. It's not that he and Sunia are super spiritual people. They're as human as the rest of us. And it's not like they had a game plan to deal with this. They didn't go into this trial thinking, hey, when the difficult times come, we'll have these pious statements all ready to go. No, that's not how it went. Tony was in pain. And he's trying to figure out why. He was afraid that he might not live to see the birth of his first and possibly only daughter. Sunia dreaded the thought of raising her children without her husband and their father. This thing caught them by surprise. But they reached out. And they hung on to the Lord found that the Lord hung on to them and gave them grace to endure, gave them peace to comfort them. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, our shepherd gives green pastures and still waters. He restores our soul when we have gotten away from him and when we repent and come back. And when life is hard and the trail is tough and the lights go out, he is with us. There's nothing that can change that. Romans 8, 35, well-known passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now make no mistake. When trouble comes, when they begin to pile up and overwhelm us, we can start to wonder if God has forgotten about us, if he's angry with us. But I've heard this from several 
older saints down through the years, don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. When crises come like raindrops, when corralling our thoughts is like herding cats, the promises of God can get difficult to call to mind. But his faithfulness is not dependent on our memory. His presence is not mediated by our awareness. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Our God doesn't change, not even in the darkness or in the storm. He is with us. Not only is he with us, he keeps us. Listen to the Lord Jesus, John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. See, we have comfort in his presence because he is with us and he won't leave us. And we also have comfort because he will keep hold of us. But there's one more element of comfort in verse 4 of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd's rod was a hardwood club about three feet long. When predators came against his sheep, he attacked with the club. The staff could either be a straight walking stick or the traditional what we would describe as the shepherd's crook. And that would typically be six or seven feet long. Sheep have a, a way of getting themselves into tight spots. And the shepherd could reach in with that crook and pull them out without getting himself stuck in the same situation. He would also use that staff to guide them along. A shepherd who had his rod and his staff was fully equipped for whatever was going to come against his flock. David takes comfort, and when he says comfort, he's talking about encouragement. He takes comfort in his shepherd's rod and staff. How many times in David's life had he seen the Lord fight for him, defend him, deliver him from his enemies? We, we preach through David's life, and as I've reflected on that, I've come to believe that he and, and his mighty men had seen God work in their favor against vastly superior forces. And I think that was actually the rule and not the exception. Israel eventually would be able to mobilize a huge army, but most of their battles were handled by David's mighty men, the professional warriors of Israel, the standing army. And they would overcome forces two or three times their size or more. David saw the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, fighting the battle through them and with them and for them. 
Our shepherd is more than adequate for the predators that might lurk in the dark. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, the rulers and authorities are demonic spirits. They had held us captive by our sins, our violations of God's moral law. But that list of our trespasses, God canceled by nailing it to Jesus' cross. He then made a spectacle of the rulers and authorities by putting them on display in Jesus' triumphal entry when he came back from the grave into life. That made it evident that all their power over us had been broken by what Jesus accomplished. They're not gone, but we don't need to fear them any longer. Jesus is victor, and we are with him. Let me show you one more passage, Ephesians 1. Paul is in the middle of one of those massive sentences like only he can do. And this is one is a prayer of thanksgiving. And so he's praying that the eyes of our heart might be enabled to see what God has done for us in Christ. And among them, starting in verse 19, is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, who is the church? Us. We are. Amen. We are the body of Christ. Christ, we're told, is the head. That makes sense, right? He's the head. We're the body. Now, where are the rulers and the authorities and the powers and the dominions? Under his feet, right? If we're his body, then where are they in relation to us? Under our feet. This is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. It's seen in what Jesus has accomplished for us. His rod and his staff. They comfort me. The rod and the staff of Jesus are his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, where he sits at the Father's right hand, and the totality of authority has been given him over all things. Now listen, spiritual warfare is is a reality in the life of every believer. Sometimes it has to be confronted head on, 
But that's relatively rare. Primarily, the work of wicked spirits in our lives is covert. They hope to go undetected. They have no power in the life of a Christian other than deception and fear. In 2003, ABC News ran a report on Annie and May Miller. Two African-American women who, along with their father, were held in slavery in the Mississippi Delta until the 1960s. They had been deprived of information and threatened into submission. They did not know they had been freed. And as far as they knew, there was no one to help them. Many of us, God's people, live lives held captive by lies and fear. The lies can take a lot of different forms, but at the bottom, they all deny the victory that Jesus has won for us at the cross. A couple of quick examples. Do you believe you're worthless? God was willing to give his son to redeem you. Do you believe there's no hope in your situation? Jesus rose again from the dead. Nothing is impossible with him. Do you believe you've messed up too much? Jesus paid it all. He invites you to come to him. You find it impossible to get over what someone else has done to you. God has forgiven your sin. An impossibly large debt. In light of all that he's taken off of our shoulders, we are unable to forgive others for horrible offenses. Now, I could go on, but it's time to end. Our journey through life will include deep valleys. In those valleys, there are two contrasting experiences we can have. We can experience fear in the dark. Or we can experience the comfort of his presence. Our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, is more than adequate for whatever fears assail us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We are grateful, Lord. We are grateful. We know darkness comes. <clears throat> we understand our world has fallen. We, we recognize that sometimes it's because of us, but a lot of times it's just how events fall out. We find ourselves in deep, dark valleys. Thank you for your promise that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. Thank you for dealing with our enemy who would lurk in the darkness to suffocate us and to steal our hope. You have risen from the dead, Lord Jesus, and defeated sin and Satan. We are grateful that you are 
with us and with you, we can even walk on water at your bidding. Lord, show yourself strong in our lives. Strengthen us to trust you and to walk with you, even in the dark. In Jesus' name, amen.